Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Sarah Griffin. And this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. Our guest today is a writer, a journalist, and a contributing editor for Men's Health magazine. It's Phil Ellis. Welcome to the show. Hey. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It is delighted to have you. Um, so we've, we're doing something a little unusual. We're doing a revisit of a topic that we'd done a long time ago. So our very first episode was The Fifth Element, where Sarah was our guest. Um, and this this month is six years exactly since we did it. Six so we years. thought it might be fun to go back to it. Um, also, I don't sound like I'm learning English for the first time and like I'm terrified of a microphone now. So that's also a positive. It was so, a different world. Yeah. It was a different time. I don't mm-hmm. need to listen to myself as like a 27 year old. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. what's in the past is in the past. So I'm very excited that our redux especially is is you phil and i'm excited to look at it now with different eyes because it is a film that keeps giving i watched this film every single night for years i would just put it on the background as i was going to sleep so i'm um i don't know it's it's still one of it still would be if i was a guest in juvenile it still would be my thing that i would bring so phil tell us all about it um I, yeah, so it is probably one of my all-time favourite films, um, but it's the kind of film where I forget about it for years at a time, and then I come back to it and I'm like, oh, I've never known a love like this. This is mm. just, it's it's everything a film should be. It has everything. It's like outsized action, epic adventure, just big, big feelings, so much, ro- like, it all hinges on, you know, romance and a kiss, which, um, you know, it's just like, it's 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 like the most American Hollywood film ever, which is ridiculous when you think it, that it's a French film. Um, but it's just like it takes all of these classic Hollywood tropes and then just like basically it's what if Blade Runner but fun. Mm. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I can't even remember the first time I saw this film. Um, it's just sort of always been there in my life, and I I went back and googled it today, and I was like, okay, I was ten when it came out, so I wouldn't have seen it until I was maybe. I think I was maybe maybe I was nine so I wouldn't have seen it until I was 10 or 11 when it came out on video and it was one where we had to rent it like every couple of weeks because I just I, I loved it so much and that's then, a lovely like concurrent theme through lots of people's different juvenilia films <laughs> is that they would ritualistically go back to the video shop and be like oh yeah. this again same same film different week let's go very uh, very terrible thing you know and then there was a glorious time in the sort of mid to late 2000s when I think I was at uni and then maybe like just sort of like the, the years after uni where almost every Sunday afternoon it would just be on channel five so if I was hungover and I needed like it was just that perfect com- it was either chat it was either um the fifth element or 10 things I hate about you so it was just oh, like wow. those two films yeah. on a loop um just pure comfort injected right into my my cerebral cortex um and then yeah I haven't really seen it for years until we were obviously chatting about what to, you know, what we could chat about on, on this episode. Um, and because obviously you guys have been going for so many years, everything else that I would have been obsessed with at that, that age, like Buffy and, and other stuff, you've already covered in depth. And I was like, oh, for them, and that might be a bit of a deep cut. And you were like, yeah, no, it was episode that one. Is the, the <laughs> deep, it's the deepest cut of all, in fact. <laughs> Unreal. And, you know, you're so right about how it's sort of a classic. It has a, it's a classic story. The story is so deceptively simple but it's presented and it does it hinges on this incredibly simple romance but 
so much about this film is so strange and so elevated mm-hmm. and so entirely its own. It's, you know, and it does feel like a cousin of Blade Runner, but like a weird cousin of Blade Runner, you know? Oh, it's the cousin that, like, at the wedding, you're like, I want to sit on that table. Yeah. And I want to hear your stories and I want to get drunk with you because yeah. you're one that's going to show me a good time. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's it's just, I, because I, so I rewatched it today for the first time in maybe three or four years. And um, there was just so much that I'd either completely forgotten or just that stood out to me because I'm, I'm a different person watching it now than I did back then. And there was actually, I was, I was like, oh, this film has themes. I've never noticed <laughs> that this film has themes before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alan, you watched it again last night for the first time in a while as well. Did you find that this time? I mean, the, the first time I saw it was in the cinema when I was 13. And I haven't seen it since because when we did the original episode, I couldn't find it anywhere. It wasn't streaming anywhere. So I've literally seen it once when I was 13 and once when I was 37. And that's kind of it. Wow. Uh, I, wow. it's, it's a lot slower than I remember. The first, it takes a long time to get going. Mm. Like, it's like, what, 25 minutes before you even see Bruce The Willis opening chapter it, is such a mood. Yeah. Those beautiful oh. aliens. What the fuck are those the boys? Hen- <laughs> those hench ducks. Yeah, they're mm. big boys, big shoulders. They're, you know? they're, they're, they're the, the, the prologue is, and I, again, I've caught, I, every time I watch this film, I forget that there is a 20 minute prologue mm. set in 1914 in the Egypt where basically they're like, it's a precursor to The Mummy, which came out like a year or two later. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, Luke Perry's there for no reason. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's just like, it's setting up vibes. It's like, here's like all the lore that you don't really need to know, mm. but here's a beautiful Egyptian temple. There's some mild, you know, problematic Orientalism going on, which we'll see. A little bit of colonial know. exploration, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit, just a smidge, you know? Um, and then Aliens, it's like, I, I can't remember, I think this must have come out like maybe a couple of years after Stargate, and there's big Stargate vibes mm. in that early yeah. early scene. Because the, aliens, then, yeah, but you, the aliens aren't like aliens. They have a sort of a holy mystique they have a sort of a monk-ish mm. energy about them they're not war machines my husband described them as like they're they're like safes do you know they have a reason yes. they're built for defense and not built for offense they move incredibly slowly they're kind of brass you know they're they're not like any other aliens that i've seen in cinema and a little bit of stargate vibes but they're they're build is really interesting and like we we see lots of aliens in this movie but there's there is something kind of religious looking about them you know they look almost like um because they've got the sort of the big uh arched backs with the sort of not spikes but like almost like um crenellations on them and it's like they almost look like temples yeah yeah shrines Uh, i bet they give really good hooks as well Oh, so they do. Big. They look so gentle. I bet you they're <laughs> the like little, warm. Little faces. Yeah. Yes. Little faces, oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they, and I, I think it's ballsy to have a prologue in a piece of cinema. Like, as a, I'm a fan of the prologue. I start, I do nothing that doesn't have a fucking preamble, which anybody who's ever met me will tell you. But I also, I respect an overture. I respect the idea that, that, that they were like, here is what, like, here's what this is about before we even meet fucking Bruce, before we get into it. Like, it's, I, I like it as a sort of a separate entity. It does require patience. You know, it's not yeah. flash bang right into the action. It's a, it's a slow rise of the curtain. And I find and that I, really nice. And I think it works because then when you immediately jump to the future 300 years later, um, in a snap cut, 
it's the the future is an assault on your senses yeah because it's this you know sort of um like 2000 ad style the space travel cities are a million miles high there's flying cars everything is in every color imaginable um and it's, it's all run of, through yeah, jean paul like, gautier it's literally all oh, run through jean paul gautier every looks, single thing in this everything in this film was designed by jean paul gautier and you can tell it's fabulous it really it really does show um and it's like almost like yeah so the, the, your intro to this world is in in egypt in this sort of you know very um remote temple and then you're thrown into this sort of metropolitan future and it's like for a second we are lilu and we are the ones having our senses assaulted um so then you can like, kind of empathize more with her when she wakes up you know in that weird tube born sexy yesterday um, yesterday. <laughs> that should be the tag on the movie born sexy yet i want that to be my twitter bio i mean i can't i can't claim that it's like obviously that is i think it's a, a fairly well-known trope of, of like like the weird science thing where it's like oh she's really hot but also she has the mind of a newborn hot and stupid space bimbos that's how we're trying to live 2022 head empty oh, and- there are so many space bimbos in this movie as well. Yeah. I just like every time I see them, those air hostesses are just iconic. Astounding. <laughs> ASOS briefly had a kind of a purple cutout dress with shoulder pads, which oh, was wow. reminiscent to the point where I was like, somebody's making a little nod. But it was kind of mm. probably made out of that kind of fabric where if you put it too near a light bulb, it'd go on fire. So it was like, again, Jean Paul Gaultier, it was not. And it would never be as structured on a human body as it would be like, on the models. No way. And also, this is a film that loves a himbo because we have regret oh. as well, right? So I, I, this okay. is so, a celebration of the of, of people who are beautiful and enthusiastic with not a lot going on upstairs. So let's go back to I, Bruce. Let's go back to Bruce before we get into oh, the rest yeah, of okay, it. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll keep it vaguely chronological. Um, I have never, like Bruce Willis has never done it for me except mm. in this film. Mm. And I don't know whether it's the orange vest or the crisis twink, like bleach blonde hair, or I, I don't know what, but I, I think it's just, he, like, he's doing his, like, the Bruce Willis thing. He's being the very typical brusque, you know, sort of mm. slightly grumpy, unshaven, like, divorced ex-military guy. But, the, the, you know, every action movie has one. But it's just like, what if we took that guy and put him in, it's, it's, like, it's like, basically, what if we took that guy and put him in a Muppets movie? And he is, he's, you know, acting like he's in a normal movie, but he's actually in The Muppets. He's Michael <laughs> Caine in Christmas Carol. He's Michael Caine in Christmas Carol. It's, he is it's exactly that. Dead and then, you know, we, we're going to give him like Miss Piggy in the form of Ruby Rod and it's just going to watch it all happen. And, and it's, yeah, it, it, it just, this is the only configuration in which Bruce Willis works. In yeah, <laughs> in, in, in against this bizarre backdrop, and his little tiny freakish apartment is wonderful as well. Because I remember seeing that oh, as a child and yeah. thinking that's impossible. And now as an adult, I'm like, that looks like about two grand a month to me. Oh. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and this is what I mean when it's like we we get more out of it each time we watch it. Because yeah, like I remember look, watching it as a kid and being like, oh my god, those like futuristic apartments look so cool. And now I'm like, I have just moved out of a flat that looked like that. Exactly <laughs> like that. And it's like, oh, how could he have a cat in there like pretty easily? When you think about it, you know, you know, and like there's lo- there's so many details of his world that they managed to show us without being without doing exposition. All of the exposition happens super organically and super quickly. Right. Like the and tiny it's so cigarettes. Visual. It's oh so God, visual. The tiny cigarette. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And he's like trying to quit. So they're getting smaller every day. And then he opens the window and he gets the food outside. And like, it's all done in a very efficient manner. It's almost like a graphic novel. 
in that way like it's cartoon i think it was i think it was influenced by um some comic books and but it's absolutely that like so much of the storytelling is visual um, and the world building it's like there is it's there's no wealth of exposition outside of that like little bit of prologue so there's no like oh in the year 20,000 whatever um it's not telling you there's no scrolling text at the beginning telling you what the premise is it's not saying the earth is overpopulated and highly polluted but you can infer that because you see these massive cities and then you see that the airport is on a rubbish dump um and it's just letting you take in the images and then you you you're telling yourself the story from those um and it's just and there's so many amazing, yeah, just the, the, the tiny cigarette. That's, today was the first time I've actually noticed the tiny, the tiny cigarette. cigarette. And then Ruby also has the tiny cigarette because like, then at the end, he's like, oh my God, no, I quit smoking. If I'd known, I wouldn't have quit smoking. And but, but that is foreshadowed because you see him smoking the tiny cigarette right in his first scene. And so, oh, yeah, it just all, everything Nothing comes together so neatly, but it's not too neat. Um, I know, mm. obviously, because I'm a, I'm a, a big um, juvenilia stand, so I know that you're not a fan of, sci-fi movies where it's like everything is you know packaged about. in a star wars marvel way and i love the, yeah. the 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 you could easily launch a cinematic universe with this film because there are mm. so many aspects of it you know you could pursue the shape-shifting displaced people you could just you know you could you pursue could... the theater company that put on the opera like the whole exactly like is and, so and... rich and, and but you only get get like the tiny tiny hints of it, and that makes it even more delicious. It's like a fine dining like tasting menu where you only get like one spoonful, but it's just like oh god, it's the best spoonful ever because I'm not that I'm not overserved on it now. Mm. And I think as well because we because Lulu is like born sexy yesterday, and it, in so many ways the story is very archetypical in the way that like like Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis, and like you know save the sexy girl fall in love save the world the fifth element is love you know like there there is a simplicity to it that that driving simplicity kind of negates all of the details it is about a big sweeping simple story and not really about it doesn't explain itself at any juncture all the explanation that we really get is in the very beginning in the overture I don't know the name of those aliens. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know where they're from. I don't know what their deal is. I don't know what their DNA is. I don't know how their leader was murdered. I don't know the personal story of like they're just here and this is what's happening. It's kind of storytelling. That's all you need to know. Like I, I, I was, I went on Wikipedia to kind of read through the plot summary. Apparently, those aliens are called uh, Mondoshi ones. I think that is mentioned in the script, but again, it doesn't really matter. I think it's, it's one of my, it was one of my favorite things about Buffy as well. You know, if we're talking about the, these period pieces, it's she's a, a pretty girl um, and she fights monsters, and that's li- like literally the plot is in the title. There is a lot more lore about Watchers and Slayers and potentials and all this that gets sort of built into the later seasons, but you don't need that. It really is just, here is a hot woman. She's here to save the world. Like, are you going to help her or not? And it's literally, that is all you need. That is Lilu's, I mean, basically, like, Lilu doesn't really even have much of a character. I can imagine, like, on the page, there is nothing there, but Mila Jovovich is so magnetic that it kind of doesn't matter. She's mad looking, isn't she? Like, she's so bizarre. And the way they construct her out of the arm is fantastic. So, you know, the the, the story is that like this, this, this lovely benevolent kind of gang of God aliens come down to remove this fifth element. This it is. It's like this fifth element from the earth. And yeah. they're like, yeah, Yo, you just can't have it. <laughs> you guys suck. <laughs> We're taking it upstairs with us again. 
uh, you can have it back eventually. And um, a monk who was part of their order in much, much later years, who was played by... Ian Holm. Ian Holm. Bilbo Baggins, yeah. Um, and his assistant, who is very... Gre- Kerry made the observation, he's very, he's very Greg from Succession. Enormous Greg from oh. Succession, Succession Energy on his assistant. Yeah. Um, they uh, salvage the arm, like an arm of one of the uh, god aliens with the sort of implication that they're all dead you know that the arm is the sort of final remaining piece of them from which Lilu is sort of uh, resurrected so we see her being built we see her being put yeah. together you know it's um, early CGI but it's pretty good I honestly the, the effects in the film do hold up considering it's like 25 years old um, I think because they they chose the right balance of like CGI and practical effects and the, the, and there is like a very solid line where you can see where they when they switch between the two but like mm. I kind of don't really mind it looking a little bit janky and some of it does look like they've drawn directly onto the film with crayons some of yeah. them like especially <laughs> do but uh, but mostly it does mostly I was really surprised by how good it still looked like the that sequence, yeah, 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 that sequence where she jumps mm. from the side of the building. Oh, whoa, iconic, beautiful, like, whoa. It looks like a painting. Yeah, yeah, in her fantastic bandage knickers situation with her unreasonable hair, which allegedly they burnt, they burnt her hair off her head for that style. That's not a wig. Um, oh, wow. I think that they did that to her hair, and then not much of it survived. In afterwards. the credits, it's like hair by hair by Arwen. It's just one name, it's like a one yeah. name hairstylist person. So you can imagine a bit of Ruby Rod energy without that yeah. person doing that. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But like, I think they basically, I think everybody went to see the film based on that one image of her jumping off the, building, off the building in the trailer. Yeah, I feel like that was the, the entire ad. I know that's basically what we went to see. It was like this looks amazing. Yeah. It, it looks like nothing we've ever seen before. Like like you think yeah. Jurassic Park was ninety three. Stargate was 95. This is like a very small amount of time to get to this gigantic city with the mass, like basically like Baz and Blade Runner, I guess is kind of what it is. That, <gasps> that's, yeah. exa- that's exactly, that's exactly what it is. That's yeah. it, Baz oh. Luhrmann Blade Runner. You nailed it. That's exactly oh, what it is. You've, you've, you've nailed it. When you said yeah. Blade Runner, it unlocked because I, I had Baz Luhrmann. There's also like Baz Luhrmann camera angles and like yeah. very, you know, when, you know when they get a little too close to the camera in Romeo and Juliet for certain bits when something's very heightened. There's a lot yes. of that in there. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Lots of, lots of close-ups of me over just like wide Bambi eyes. Yeah. yeah. Nobody looks like her. I'll tell you that much. You can't look, yeah. you can't fake, you can't like Juvederm that shit, man. Do you know what I mean? Like you only want her like, <laughs> um, so when she does jump off the side of the building, she extremely conveniently lands in Bruce Willis's taxi. And that is where the story really begins. And it, oh, the bad a big boom, yeah. Oh um, my god, yeah. This beautiful like, oh, girl like, drops from the she's sky. So, she's so dumb and she's so cute and she's just, oh, yeah, it's it's and it is like a, 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 a just a, a, a weird like fairy tale like moment of it's fairy tale logic of like where else would she fall into but like mm. Bruce Willis's arms basically, yeah. Um, yeah. Because that is and again in, only in this movie I'm like well that's where I would want to land as well. <laughs> yeah, what a perfect place um, to be, you know. And then it's like he very quickly decides oh like this woman's ruined my day my taxi's totaled oh but the police are looking for her and all oh, like no she there's something about her I'm going to help her even though it's against my better nature and all you know against my better judgment and all that 
um, because he's just like a softy at heart. He is, um, and a romantic and then, at heart, looking for the perfect. He is romantic, you know, I mean, like he's looking for the perfect woman, and she falls into sexy. And when she's pointing a gun at him, he's just giving her the doe eyes and looking at her like she's made of candy floss. It's just like the sweetest thing. Um, and yeah, and so then he becomes basically embroiled in this uh, sort of cosmic, but also incredibly simplistic plot of they need to uh, meet up with a priest so he can deliver some exposition. And then they're going to go on a trip across the universe to um, a cruise ship on a planet called Flost and Paradise, which I wish existed in real life. Oh, the pleasure um, ship. Just it's and uh, to meet to meet an opera singer with tentacles so she can bestow on them four mystical stones which hold the key to saving all life on Earth. Yeah. And there is and... also a planet made of pure evil. <laughs> oh, yeah, our villain, we do have a big bad uh, lingering away in the background in a, at a kind of a distant menace level, you know, like his purpose yeah. is sort of, he hops in and out like of the of the story a little bit he's just watching everything from afar and again my actor face blindness is gonna do the thing to me again but he's very famous gary oldman gary oldman with and he um i remember seeing this film very young and the moment in it where the black starts to come out of his forehead yeah. is completely lodged in me for some reason like really it's so scary. sinister yeah and then like when you when the, when the camera zooms out i'm like well there's no cut so that was like he was just bleeding out of his paws mm-hmm. which just, makes it even creepier like and his costume um, is incredible as well like his costuming is like all yeah. um like latex and plastic and he's he's a really he's a good villain though his sort of role is a little mysterious towards the end especially like leading up towards the end um he kind of doesn't need to be in it almost i mean i think i only noticed just for the first time when i was watching it today that the hero and the villain never actually meet no. yeah yeah so there is no never because they have these sort of um, shape-shifting mangalores, I think they're called, like the ugly guys with the big ears, who are sort of like the foot soldiers of the bad guy, but also then get double-crossed by the bad guy. So they, they've just become like agents of chaos, basically, on the ship. And they're the ones that kind of cause all like the action scenes and the shootouts. But I kind of do love that the story isn't involved, inter- interested in having like two guys having like a big good versus evil showdown. The showdown is, no, you need to make, this divine woman believe that humanity is worth saving and that humanity is allowed to have nice things by kissing her <laughs> by giving her a big kiss <laughs> and living happily ever after and as they like finding those hidden stones is a really i i'll never forget how shocked I, there's so much lovely adventure that leads up to the climax of this story which is gross and weird like yeah. The stones aren't just casually hidden in the uh, like dressing room of the tentacled opera singer who uh, her musical sequences again iconic in its own way. Like I think you either get it, the girls who get it get it, you know. With the, the girl who gets sequence, it, it's it's a lot. It's very hypnotic. Um, the stones are hidden inside her body, which is terrifying. Like yeah, what was the plan there if she didn't get shot? I'm wondering. She knew she was going to man. She, yeah. She knew, like, she was going to throw herself down on something. She does have psychic vibes. Like, there is a, when she walks in, like, wearing the full veil, and all she does is, like, look at somebody, and it's almost like she's speaking telepathically. So I think it's like, yeah, but maybe she foresaw that, like, her purpose was to deliver the stones and then die. Because she seems to immediately know who Bruce Willis is. 
she knows that she's part of a bigger plan and that and that's also this yeah there's this like this overarching mysticism that is never fully tapped into or explained mm. but it's just accepted and, and bruce willis who is like the reluctant hero of the piece he's just like okay no that's fine that makes sense yeah, yeah. i'm not gonna question it it, it is weird actually that, that like in a film that is so like high sci-fi that it is ultimately like mystical powers that are saving the day that are driving everything yeah it's not a MacGuffin. it's a like mystical power stuff there's no there's no real object i guess it's an actual person and like magic essentially at, at the center of it all yeah so i have a theory oh okay. yeah right so yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna talk themes now guys excellent um, so i and again i don't really notice it like this time around like just noticing how like foggy and polluted the city is and like there's this like gloriously weird sequence where gary oldman sort of um demonstrates and explains like man's reliance on automation and technology and i think that the purpose of the stones and that the ritual that they sort of enact at the end with the elements is like humanity needing to kind of get back to nature yeah um the you know literally the earth water fire and air uh and and sort of remembering that this is from which all life came not you know sort of gadgets and and gizmos and stuff yeah especially mm. because the sequences in the temple are so stripped back you know mm. everything else in this future is very excess heavy and keep in mind how long this movie is from 25 years ago right so to the chats that we're having now about consumerism and pollution and like global warming and all those other terrifying things on the horizon of our our planet or whatever like they were sort of not in the forefront of our consciousnesses 25 years ago do you know if you had a sunny day 25 years ago you were delighted you weren't concerned you know it wasn't really the same so that response that sort of simple elemental and human response to the intensity of the cities and the luxury of Flotsam Paradise is uh, that could be at the, it actually probably isn't about when man loves woman, humans are good. It's probably about something much more um, grounded than that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, like I think the the excess that we see in the film is not well. It's delicious to look at, like the McDonald's and everything. Mm. You know, it's like the yeah. girls with their McDonald's uniforms and Ruby Rod and his amazing costumes and his sort of like harem of gals around him like there's there's so much excess but none of it is kind of even Bruce Willis is sort of always side-eyeing all of the excess as well do you know what I mean he doesn't feel impressed by it and Lilu was sort of experiencing it like a child and not like seeking it out with any greed I don't know I think you're right I think there it has to be about something purer and I, I think it's like, it's something that we are constantly in conversation with where it's like, oh, I mean, isn't, aren't all these like new things great? And don't I kind of want to like, I mean, you know, if I see something I like, I'm like, oh, like I could just go on Amazon and buy it. And then you have to sort of have that conversation with yourself of like, but I'm trying to be sustainable. I'm trying not to like, but oh God, it's so tempting. And it, and it is so inviting. Um, and I just know that yeah, if I if I lived in this future, I would absolutely be one of those sort of you know decadent capital folks living on that shit in a wig. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> having a great time. Like there there is a uh, I mean it could be because it's a European film. Do you know what I mean as well? That there is a sort of a particular gaze on this capitalistic thing 
you know, like Luke Besson did a uh, taxi driver. Did he do taxi driver as well? No, no, it was Martin Scorsese. Scorsese? There, he did Leon. He did. He, Leon, Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. which are similar. Sure, yeah, yeah. There's like a little girl in each of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a girl. There's, there you go. There's a girl. There you go. Born yesterday, sexy. You know, these men directors are like, but the... Uh... Uh, they're very young girls. They're like 14-year-olds in those films. Yeah, no, I mean that literally born yesterday. Okay. I wasn't joking. I was being... I was being, No, literally, literally yesterday. Okay. Terrible men. Um, but I think that there's something about that sense, that European sensibility in it as well. Do you know what I mean? Like that there's a, there's a critical eye on it. You know, like it's on one hand, obviously luscious to look at. But like you said, the airport is literally a junkyard. Like there's there are obvious holes in, in the beauty of the city and in the beauty of the world. And yeah, there's like one reference where it's like, oh, yeah, sorry about the mess. And he's like the mess. And she's like the wall of garbage. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. Um, and, you, and yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, why, why are they surrounded by garbage? That is weird. Um, and yeah, it's it's and it, I think it's like when when you're first shown this future world, you're like, oh my god, this is so shiny and exciting. And then it's like the longer you spend in this world, you're like, that's kind of gross. You know, there's a weird elephant thing living in Gary Oldman's desk. Um, yeah. He's got this like exotic alien, just like he's keeping us like a pet with his little with his little nose. Yeah. Um, and it's just all yeah it's like it's all both like really glamorous but also kind of grotesque. Um, and I think this is why. Every, I, I just love coming back to it whereas like something like star wars or blade runner like there's world building galore there too but i'm sort of being fed everything and told how to feel about it yeah mm. rather than letting your eyes pick it up and your own gut lead you and i think mm. that like it's implied that <laughs> it's implied that there are politics it's implied that there is <laughs> shit going on you know it's a functioning world but we're only looking at the world through a kind of a, a little a little a little peek through the curtain. The whole window mm. isn't open, but we're just we're just getting a little peek through it. So because it's so and I, I think how we can infer so much and we can all come away differently from it is because it is like it's all fucking cinematography and design. You know, and yeah. even the parts of their CGI, I find CGI, um, I feel like I'm always saying this these days, and it could be because like my motion sickness is getting worse with time, that if there's too much CGI on screen, I get like a kind of a visual salad effect and I can't follow anything that's happening. Like, I simply don't yeah. know what's going on in front of me. If too much shit starts exploding at once, I can't visually compute it. Do you know? Like, it, oh, the final act of any Marvel film, it's mm. just a bl- I think it was the um, one I went to recently, Shang-Chi, which is one of the, the better, you know, cookie cutter Marvel films until it gets to the, the third act. And then it's like, there are so many dragons flying around very quickly. I can't tell which is the good one and which is the bad one. You know, mm. um, like, it, it's just a blur. And I, I had that recently with the new Evangelion movie, which I enjoyed. But all those early those early uh, cartoons in the early film are hand drawn so you can follow it more easily. I remember seeing Fantastic Beasts, the first one. Um yeah. I didn't see the second one or anything, but I went to see, I, I, there were plenty of times where I was like, I don't know what's happening here. And I don't know if that's, I am not smart or if the Uncanny Valley is like swallowing me too soon. I think it's the color schemes of those films and the lighting because everything's yeah. dark because there's so much CGI. So it's very hard to keep track. Whereas in this, like, 
everything is in contrast with everything else. Everything is clashing. Mm. It's just one big clash visually, and it's like gorgeous. It looks amazing. So like when Mivojevic is battling all those um, mar 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 Mongolians, I don't know. Shape shifting boys. The big guys. The big guys. <laughs> you can, you, you know, yeah, yeah, you know exactly where she is at all times. You know exactly which limb is hers in any shot. You know. Yes. Like there's choreography to it rather mm. than just spectacle and violence. Yeah. And also the perk of making your heroine bright orange. You know where she yes. is at all times. <laughs> that fucking orange harness? Astounding. Astounding. Oh, okay. So can we talk about the clothes? Can we talk yes. about the yes. in yes. this film? Yes. I, so one, of the, one of the best assignments I ever had was when I wrote for a really small local fashion magazine and I pitched the 10 best looks in the fifth element because it's okay. just like you know, what, a, what an embarrassment of riches to, to oh choose God. from um, yes <laughs> and I, think, like, I think i picked ruby rod's opera uh like the roses jumpsuit with the yes. roses at yeah. number one but yeah. the air hostesses were a very close second and then yeah. Lilu, like the, the the harness thingy um was number three but like i think yeah i think when i whenever i think of this film i think of her in like the weird bandage thing but she's only in that for like five minutes mm. yeah and then she's also getting constantly naked, which is also problematic. <laughs> but I think as well, uh, yeah, totally. Like it's such a, and it, it, it is such a straight male gaze film, even though Ruby, Ruby Rod is this wonderfully queer character and this wonderful, like, um, like, fa like a fantastic bisexual man, which we need oh. more of in cinema, you yeah. know? Like just more of that, please. Like, that was 25 years ago and we've had nothing of that caliber since. Um, I was in the shower earlier thinking like, because I saw a picture of Lil Nas X wearing like a very similar outfit. And I was like, mm. if there was a reboot, like Lil Nas X like would look great, but he wouldn't. I don't I don't know if he would have the Ruby Rod energy. Maybe he would. He can't like, be silly. Like... Lil Nas X can't, has a silly streak, you know. And it was supposed, so, it was supposed yeah. to be played by Prince originally. So that is, there is precedent for it being. And that Definitely. is written all over the character. Oh, the yeah, way yeah. he is this incredibly femme camp excellence of a character but he's like going down on women and women are just like obsessed with him yeah yeah Killing like, each other. His, his effeminacy makes him even more like sexually attractive because oh and, and the, yeah like that he's like using his whiny little bitch voice even when he's like telling a woman how much like every position he wants and stuff and it's like he's being dominant but in like the way that a whiny diva is dominant not the way that like a top is dominant <laughs> yeah it's fantastic i think it's like you you know i think on the internet people throw around a lot of this is a man written by women um mm. but i think ruby rod is a man written by women i'm like yes that is that's accurate and correct and also a completely one-of-a-kind representation you do not oh, see characters yeah. like Ruby Rod in fiction on the screen. Chris Tucker hasn't even done anything like Ruby Rod since. No way, no. never again. Yeah. Never yeah. again. It's Chris Tucker's finest role. Um, mm. And I feel like if this film were made now, that character would show up for like one or two scenes and it would be like, oh, isn't he ridiculous? And then it would move on. Yeah. Whereas in this film, they're like, isn't he ridiculous? He's going to be an integral part of the, <laughs> yeah. like, the ensemble cast for the rest of the film. I think and a Hollywood film... A Hollywood film would feel the need to give him some kind of comeuppance at some point for being annoying. Whereas oh, this film yeah. doesn't at all, you know? Yeah. Or give him a he drag is, race tragedy a, reveal, yes. you know? Yeah, where he but he's just on, He is now a companion. Like, like yeah, yeah. 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 And it's literally that simple. And it's just, oh, like, and I, he's the kind of character that, again, in any other film, I think I'd fast forward through those bits because it could so easily be annoying. Mm -hmm. But every single time, 
It's my favorite. I, I could watch like a YouTube cut of just Ruby right. Rod scenes in the element because every single time it is so hilarious when he's just does not stop screaming when he's counting to 10 and like crying at the same time. Yeah. When the priest at the end goes, whoop, and then he like hits him with his thing. He's like, what's wrong with you? And he's just like clearly so stressed from everything he's just been through. And it's just, it's, it's so, it's so funny. And, and he's a so, fantastic, oh, sorry, go. go on, oh, you go, you go. I said it's so important to remember that he's like broadcasting a live radio show for most of the show. I'm imagining like oh, his yeah. poor producer sitting back in some studio somewhere going, I guess we'll cut to music now. I guess, no, he's still screaming. Okay, we'll leave it. Go, you know? <laughs> oh, God, forget- the poor sound editor with all those, all that <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> Look, it would have been history. It would have been, it would have been history, you know, like fly on the wall through this enormous disaster. Like that's a, that's a goal. Mine, oh my God. Know? Ruby Rod would have won like a futuristic Peabody award for that reporting. For his courage, you know, in like <laughs> undergoing <laughs> live, like future Twitter would have been just like all over him. Like absolutely like the, the like man of the year, you know? And I think like Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis's disdain for him could have appeared quite homophobic and might mm-hmm. have initially kind of had like there, there's kind of an edge an edge to how bruce willis bruce willis treats him mm. but they they do have a kind of a begrudging camaraderie as it goes on as well it's more know? of an introvert extrovert yeah clash it's, than a homophobic clash i think it's I, I think it's like bruce willis is there he's got a job to do he's on a mission and it's like this frivolous celebrity is just like wasting his time getting in his way yeah. um but then it's like what I do like throughout the entire film is Bruce Willis kind of em- almost immediately will then figure out how to accept somebody on their terms. Mm-hmm. So he's like, this strange girl in my taxi is causing me trouble, but she needs help. So I'm going to help her. Um, even just like the weird, like meth addict in his hallway, who like tr- keeps trying yeah. to mug him. Nice like, yeah. I'm going to take, take your gun. I really like your hat. Have a great day. Have a great day. Yeah. Um, and he, it's, it's like, a, it's a form of grumpy kindness. And so with yeah. Ruby, he's like, I'm stuck with you you're going to help me hold this and then I'm going to tell you what to do. And, and Ruby does it. And he does. I was also like reimagining this story in my head, like when they show up to the opera together and like, they're sort of like, he's like, Oh, I have to like pretend to be like Ruby Rod's bestie for the night. For, Cause I won this competition. Uh, I'm just like, Oh, this is a romance novel. It's, it, it's the, it's the grumpy guy <laughs> yeah. and the sunshine guy. And like, they're going to fall in love and that's how I would write it. And I would absolutely just like, there was, there was 100% if Mila Jovovich was not in this film being charismatic to all hell. Well, and walking around one. with like wearing a flower lay with her eyes falling out of her head, delighted at the world. You know, if she wasn't so delightful, if she wasn't so delightful, she would have been totally in the way of their romance, but she's just lovely. Like she's just such a joy, you know? She, oh, she, it, it, yeah, she, and, and again, like, she flits between being ridiculous and being just so human. Yeah. Um, like, the scenes where it's like, oh, she can't speak English, this is hilarious. Um, and then, like, the the weird, the deeply weird fight scene, which I, it's probably one of my favourite parts of the film, to then, like, every single time when she's in that air vent crying, yeah. like, mm-hmm. I cry because yeah. she's just so, she is life incarnate and she feels everything feels at a million percent. That so bit, when she, like, oh. And about in the beginning when she's learning everything with the the camera, yeah. when she's watching everything at once and trying to, like, um, learn all about humans, you know, and she's, like, that's incredible. And her, her emotionality is really, it's not overwrought. 
it's not melodramatic like it's very um in a very unreal backdrop her emotions are very real yeah when basically she towards the end is like at the beginning she's like oh my god everything is amazing i'm i'm so dazzled and then it's she discovers like war and violence and it it breaks like the very heart of her um and it's like it's it could be so trite and so corny and it kind of is but also like for for that to be the thing that the, the entire climax of the film hinges on it's like no like but life is still worth living um yeah. It's just, God, I just, just, I think it's really good. <laughs> it's just lovely. It's just a simple and strange fable, you know? And I don't know. I don't know if they could make it today in the same way. And I think we said this years ago as well that I don't think, I mean, like recasting it is a delight always in considering these fantastic archetypes and these wonderful characters and wonderful costumes that we could go along with. But like its simplicity is part of its power. And its slowness is part of its power as well. Like it's yeah, painting I, a picture. I had never realized until I, 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 I had to rent it on Prime today because um, Alan's right. It's not on streaming anywhere. No, it's a cult classic. Like you were there or you weren't, you know. And it's two hours long. Yeah. And, and normally, I mean, I'm very much of the I don't think any film needs to be longer than 90 minutes. And I genuinely, because when I think of this film, I think of her falling through the taxi. I think of, you know, the the, the spaceship lux- luxury cruise liner. I think of the opera. Mm. Um, I always think of it as being like a really like clippy, well-paced, like fast-paced action romp. But there's so much of it that's just like, we're just going to hang out in this weird setting for a little while and let you, let you walk. It's almost like a video game. You can walk around in this incredible secondary world and we're not going to rush you. It does feel like, yeah, they're going through all the dialogue options sometimes. Like when the major comes in to like tell Bruce Willis he's like sending him off on the mission, that should, that could be like a 15 second scene easily. But there's like, first he has a chat with the um, the traveling lunch guy and then he has a phone call yes. with his mother and then he has a conversation with the three of them and then he puts them away and has another conversation with the police and then it's like, when it, that when was it like we got one piece of information. This witch, sorry? Yeah, yeah. It's when, it, when it turns into a bedroom fast, that whole yeah. scene is yeah. amazing. Love people, Fraser Crane. Love people <laughs> hiding in wardrobes. Not enough of it. Not enough of doors opening and closing and people getting stuck in things. Bring mm-hmm. that back. That's what. That's good storytelling. That's what I think. And that's, that's what I mean when it's like this film just crams in. It's like a million things. Like that did not need to be in this film, but it's, it just it makes every choice imaginable, and they're all the right choice because they are just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And like 99% of it, like it's just absolutely works. Like because, the slapstick, like... The, the, the weird, the weird like puerile childish humor. And then this like deeply sort of human like uh, sensibility about, you know, the power of love or whatever. It's just like, it all, it all works in equal measure. And I, I think it wouldn't work if you were to pull any one of those elements out. No, you're right. And I think what you you guys, you've just hit something on the head about all that unnecessary stuff, right? Because it does feel like fluff. You're, you're right. It does make the film long. But here's the thing. There are two ways to do character development. You can either sit them down and have them say a bunch of shit that happened to them that led them to this moment. Or you can show them dealing directly with different situations. And that is how you learn about who a character is. And that's how Kerry calls it beach day. So um, Sailor yeah. Moon, right? 
we went through a big phase of watching the Sailor Moon original TV show when we were living in California. It dropped on Hulu, two episodes every Monday night, right? Every Monday night, we'd sit down for an hour and we watched two episodes of Sailor Moon, which is plotty. The original has a lot of plot, right? It's a, while it is a bunch of girls dicking around and like fighting monsters whose faces are made of high heels. Yes. It also like, it's got a, it's got a big arc in it, right? But like maybe once every four episodes, you'll get a bit of arc. And then once more, more episodes than not, it's just them kind of going to the arcade, going to the mall, going to the beach. Right. And you need that unnecessary shit in order to care about these women when they're at the end of the world. You know, absolutely. I think my favorite beach episode is um, in Avatar The Last Airbender, where the Fire Nation go to the beach and end up like complete like it's like you see what the supervillains look like when they're just being like mean girls and it's it's like it's yeah it's it's, it's like a supervillain takes a day off who are they when they're not plotting to take over the world and that's it's and, and i i love that because yeah in the so in the fifth element we know nothing about corbin dallas other than he was he he was Come. in a war and now and, and in the military and now he's not yeah um and he has this sort of like you know there was a a a, a a, a military career that is alluded to. We yeah. know he has a mother who is a lot. She and he has an ex-wife who he's devastated over and who isn't going back to him. And that is all established in less than a minute. Uh, none of it is, like, the, his ex-wife doesn't get a name. His, you know, we don't know what happened in the military. All we know is he's disillusioned with it and he left. Um, and that's all we need to know because then it's a woman falls into his taxi, she needs help. And the way that he reacts to that is all we need to know about him. Exactly. You learn as you go. And like in those fire scenes and in that silliness and in the, the messing around, like you can like you can see who people are and your investment in them goes up. Like the priests not are being like, oh, shocked by uh, Mila Jovovich when she's getting changed. Of course they are because they're priests. Do you know what I mean? But like they they are they are actually men of the cloth. Do you know what I mean? Like, which is kind of like details like that, you know, like are interesting. And like, I feel like that there is not um, like, while it feels like there are spare scenes, there also aren't spare scenes because everything, everything in the picture needs to be in the picture for you to go on this journey. I, yeah, I, I mean, if I was to go through, I mean, I, oh, I have to turn this two hour film into a, a 90 minute film. I don't know what oh, I would want to remove because even the yeah even the seemingly superfluous bits like there's like a million henchmen the work with Gary Oldman he doesn't need that many but they're all great and they're all and it's all like it's like oh it's that guy that I saw in this other thing whose name I don't remember there's, there's and, and even like the most the most minor characters who don't even have names like Lee Evans shows up as the skipper on the cruise ship yeah that was he, has, like, yeah. he has a little random arc the, the the deaf guy at the opera has a little mini arc the cops who get their lunch at McDonald's interrupted get a mini arc that ends in them running into a bunch of um, new hamburgers. It's it's like everything has a little button on it. And so it's like there's a million subplots within this movie. And I, I, I just, I like them all to be there. Yeah, it needs to be that big. And I think that I like, I understand the, imp- <laughs> like every so often I'm like, don't say that, Sarah. But every so often I'm just like the fucking that whole like 12 the joseph campbell's fucking hero's journey poison it's fucking poison like it means that everything feels the same it means that every 
like a lot of really fantastic films fall prey to the same emotional beats, the same structure. It leaves very little room for surprise. It leaves very little room for dreaminess and kind of fucking around. And when every film feels like a machine, now I will often be like, oh, that was like a perfectly executed machine. I use machine a lot because I do think films are narrative and visual machines in different ways. But I think a lot of them can be very, very homogenous. And the more homogenous cinema, especially science fiction that we consume, the less room and space we have and patience we have for here's a fucking 20 minute prologue. You're never going to see any fuckers again, you know, like for the sake of it, because this is how the vibe is. It leaves less room for expression and for play within this marvelous conceit. Like the idea to me that superhero movies are fucking boring. How did they do that? <laughs> how did they do that? Do how, you know? how did you make superheroes boring? Yeah. And you know, well, you know they... what would make superheroes not boring again is to introduce a seven foot tall blue opera singer with tentacles <laughs> and have her do a musical interlude over the climactic fight scene. Inexplicably carrying all around Thanos' fucking bits and pieces in her stomach. Inexplicably. Off you go. Such... Deal with that. It's such a messy plot compared to most films. Yeah. It's when you think about it, like when they throw up the airport, and there's like four different people trying to get onto that ship as Corbin Dallas, and they all have slightly conflicting. They could work together, but they're not. And it's like there's like four separate aims happening in this film. Instead, it's good versus bad, and, and it really and then it always then it's, they they get like what like fifty aliens onto that ship somehow. Yeah, don't know how, but they still do it. I don't even. Oh yeah, I think. They end up like killing the crew and taking their places or something. But again, it's yeah. like I don't remember like the specifics of the plot of like how the aliens mm. get onto the ship. I don't care because I'm getting distracted by the deep, deeply horny guys filling the <laughs> ship with fuel at the same time that the uh, <laughs> the air stewardess is getting nicked out by Ruby Rod. It gets so dirty so quickly for a film that's like mostly about like I mean like again like Lilu arrives all fucking purity wearing her like like sexy but also like innocent weird bandage it's, frock. It's a bra nappy is what it yeah, is. Yeah it is and like but also like she's got she nobody looks like Mirzovich do you know what I mean like she's incredible looking but there's also something really sanitized about her but then all of this incredibly sexy stuff happens later on it just doesn't really deal with her very much everyone else is having a nice time you know everyone else is able to be overtly sexy it's such a horny silly film it and like, not enough films not, not enough like genre films are horny or silly enough oh my god i think i said this on our on our star trek next generation um episode where i was like everyone wants to fuck in this show i did not realize how much fucking was in star trek because until i started who is hornier who is Barry? <laughs> and also nerds Nerds, yeah, nerds. Yeah, but are so horny. <laughs> but Gene, my uh, we talked about it before on the show. There's a very in- Gene Roddenberry is so some man for saying inappropriate shit. I tell you that much. But you know, speak your speak your power. Um, there there's a there's a sexy ethos behind Star Trek. But yeah, there. But that's it. Nerds are horny, and like it's nice to see that kind of. It's nice. It's it's camp and it's sexy and it's silly. And in order to have that sexiness, in order to have a scene in an intergalactic airplane 
where Chris Tucker is going down on an air hostess. Like, you need to have a lightness and a, a, a riskiness and a sense of humor about that. That needs to be playful in order for it to work, you know? And it, it, it's so silly, but it's also so hot. Like, it's I, fantastic. I think, and I think it's moments like that that sort of save it from being, oh, this is a film that then people are going to cancel because it's like baby Miljovic keeps stripping off in front of these grown men. Because then it's like, well, no, like the only pleasure you see in the film is female pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and, and Ruby Rod, like, clearly knows his way around a clitoris. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, she comes so hard that the ship takes off. Like, Beautiful. It's just... You don't see that. Not enough of that in films. Not enough. Not enough of it. Like, six years later, from the first chat we've had about this, and I still don't think it's, there's enough of it around. And yeah, there, there, like, it is a it is a gazy film there is definitely the male gaze at work here but i think i don't it doesn't feel exploitative to me for whatever reason maybe i'm just a fan but it I never feels gross for as much as there are so many men being like oh she's perfect it's almost like they're just like boys with crushes and the yeah. minute she starts to like strip off in her very like guileless way everybody is then a gentleman and turns around yeah and it's like so the, so the priests could easily be creepy but they're not they turn around they give her her, her modesty and when she does it in front of Corbin, he turns around, he's like, coffee? And he's just like doing his best to ignore the fact that like this woman who basically he has already fallen in love with yeah. um, is naked behind him. Um, and this is another thing. So like the villain and the hero never meet. I, I keep forgetting that Corbin and Lilu spend most of the second half of the film separate on that ship. When he wakes yeah. up, she's gone. So he decides that he's in love with her when he's only spent like five minutes with her. And again, that's the sort of the, the very dreamy love at first sight sort of thing where it's like, well, that's not in the text. You know, I, I mean, I've literally just spent the last year writing a rom-com. I could not get away with that. Yeah. Oh, write, no editor alive. No you have editor to write alive people falling in love. <laughs> but, but it works because it's like she fell into his taxi and then he and then he helped her. So now they're going to fall in love because that's this that's the story that we're telling here. And sometimes that's all you need. And I think as well, when you're writing a sit, like it is a love story, you know, it is a story about the redeeming power of love, which is also a fucking audacious story to be telling at all. Like you really don't want to be a cynic about this. You have to be like, actually, yes, love in all of its incarnations is what keeps us all alive all of the time. There is no point if there is not love. Right. That's a brave thing to say in the world at all in our cynical times right so like they i think on one hand oh he does fall in love with her after five minutes but also she falls into the back of your fucking taxi on arguably one of the worst days of your life she's milizovic and she's like incredibly kind and incredibly sweet and bound to this bizarre destiny i personally wouldn't i'd be as bad as a man I wouldn't be I wouldn't be above falling in love with her under that circumstance either. The whole situation is deeply romantic. And the idea that that romance somehow penetrates the fucking scowly, pissy Bruce Willis hardened military man exterior. That's lovely. Of course it does. You know, of course it does. This, this, this film has the kind of masculinity that I want, that I want, where it's like mm. you can be fair. And even if you are a, a really gruff action hero, I want you will swoon when a when a woman falls from the sky, because of course you will. <laughs> of course you will. Of course you will. It's lovely. Like it is a film in which 
people are very different to one another and there are little kind of clips on the shoulder like Ian Holm is not really keen on uh Bruce Willis and like there is a there is tension it's not just like fucking parks and recreation let's all go and be fucking friends in space definitely it's not that but I think that there there is a lot of there's a lot of love and a lot of hope in it as a story and um it's warming the idea that tenderness is not weakness that yes. kindness is not weakness that you can yeah. be strong and brave but still love and and be vulnerable like when yes. he says like when, when she's going through the alphabet and he's like there's great things that you know you can be with the letter v you can be valiant you can be vulnerable um and it's just like oh bruce willis dye your hair yellow again and then maybe like call me <laughs> yeah give a show bruce let's go you know <laughs> Big smooch at the end. Big smooch at the end saves the world. You know? I, I, I mean, and, and again, like, the number of years I spent being like, I would have been like, a kiss that saves the world? Oh, fuck off. And nah. now it's like, a kiss, that saves, a kiss that saves the world, and it's a kiss so good that she is able to summon the light of creation. The light of creation. <laughs> oh. Who among us would not enjoy that? <laughs> right? Realistically speaking, that's how I want to feel. That's how I want to be kissed Kiss in this me world. in an Egyptian temple or go home. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's a whole bunch of stones around that you have personally summoned from the good of a beautiful blue alien opera singer, then I don't, I don't. If he doesn't have, ladies, if he doesn't have the stones from the gut of a beautiful blue alien opera singer in his house, don't fuck him. Don't do it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's John Waters. That's what that is. Um, I think that's oh the exact gosh. quote, yeah. That's the exact yeah. quote. Yeah, it wasn't me. I'm taking no credit. Um, hey Phil, I think you should plug your stuff. Have we, have we have we gone? I think we have we have told the story. We have done the job. I think we we yeah we meandered and went all over the place because much like the the movie, this conversation was a little bit messy. But I would have it yeah. no other way. Yeah, that's um, the right way to do it. It's all vibes. It's all vibes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Philip underscore Ellis. Um, that's Philip with one L, Ellis with two. I'm on Instagram at Philip Ellis. Um, I have a thing coming out. I can't talk about it yet. I will hopefully be able to talk about it soon. Ooh. That's exciting. That's very exciting. Sarah, where can we find you? Uh, in my house, I'll never still don't mm. fucking go out anywhere. Um, I'm on Twitter at Grifsky. Um, on Instagram at Sarah Grifsky. And I have a uh, Patreon where you can get zines in the mail from me this year. Um, uh, my book. I, do you know what? During our last, ep- last episode, I didn't mention that I was a novelist. I didn't mention. I didn't <laughs> at the end for the first time in years. I didn't go and you can buy spare and pen parts or other words for smoking all good bookstores. So I'm gonna underscore that here if you didn't hear it last time. I'm, I'm um, gonna coast on that because that's yeah. fucking bangers. Oh, thank you, Bill. Thank you for reading them. It's so exciting when people do read them. Books are long, you know? Like, it's hard to ask people to read your books. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, I just wrote one and they are fucking long. Yeah. They're big, big series. Like, 80,000 words is no joke, you know? It's a serious chunk of your life. Uh, Alan, my dearest, where can we find you? Um, I am Alan underscore McGuire everywhere. Juvenalia is Juvenalia underscore pod on Twitter, Juvenalia pod on Instagram. We have a Patreon where we talk about things that we started and finished in the previous two weeks for on a whole bonus series that people can listen to. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And thank you to Dee McDonald for our artwork. Thanks, Dee. Thank you to Cassie at Tall Tales for having us. Thanks, Cassie. Um, see you back here in six years for another Fifth Element chat, I guess. Woo! All right, uh, I will six watch years! It five more times between then and now. Five All right. more times! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.